Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that we're going to have a very enriching discussion with Dr. Amy King. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Um, Please introduce yourself to our audience and then we'll jump right into our discussion today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ingrid. Um, Yeah, so my name is Amy King. I'm a licensed psychologist. I also do consultation and training. You'll most often find me at the intersection of where kids and families are. So in pediatric health and in early childhood educational systems, because that's where I can have the most systemic impact on kids and families. And those are the systems that we find them in the most frequently. But when I'm not doing that, um, I am uh, doing keynotes and workshops, and I have a little farm in Oregon where my family and I reside. And so just staying busy doing those things as well. Yes, and my understanding is that you have an upcoming book. Um, what is the title of your your new book? Yes, yeah, so we have a book coming out in June with the American Academy of Pediatrics, myself and my co-author, Dr. R.J. Gillespie, and it is called A Trauma-Informed Pediatric Practice, mm-hmm. A Resilience-Based Roadmap to Early Relational Health. Yes, early relational health, yes, and that's really the topic that we have on the table today, and so Before we jump in, you know, tell our audience how you got into this work. What brought you here in your career? Yeah, thanks for asking. So as a psychologist, I've always been doing work around trauma and specifically how trauma impacts children um, in a lot of different settings, healthcare settings and juvenile correction settings, private practice, community mental health And I also was endorsed in pediatric health. So I've worked in integrated behavioral health settings and in pediatric primary care. And there was just this kind of uprising several years ago. As you know, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris had an infamous TED Talk around ACEs. And um, a group of pediatricians from the Children's Health Alliance in Portland, Oregon, approached me and said, you know, hey, you know a lot about childhood trauma and you know a lot about pediatrics and how we operate. Could you come and do some consulting with us? And so I had the distinct honor of working with this group of what I call, you know, pilot pediatricians who were really beginning to look at ACEs and what do we do about adverse childhood experiences in primary care. And we endeavored together for over a year in finding ways that they could begin to talk about and address stress and trauma in well-child visits, in acute care visits, in pediatric and primary care settings. So that's kind of how I got started. Yeah, I think it's very important when we talk about ACEs and childhood adversity that um, we really look at kind of all the different sectors that touch a child's life. And so pediatrics is um, critical in this, in, in their role, in their ability to address early adversity, especially because they have access to both the child and parents. Um, they tend to be trusted messengers in the community. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's it's great that we have pediatricians who are kind of um, getting into the fray around ACEs. And I know that over time we've had even more. And so um, last week we talked a little bit about uh, how, you know, this biomedical 
uh, view of childhood trauma um, is 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 not that it's you know not accurate, but that it's just not the whole story, and that we really have to dig into those environmental factors. And I think that this topic, early relational health, is spot on in the ability to illustrate how environmental factors have great impact on a child's development. So, you know, tell our audience, what is early relational health or relational health in general? Yeah, so relational health is an ongoing engagement between a child and their caregiver that's fostering empathic growth and attunement really to help them grow in terms of their social emotional development. And so early relational health is when we focus on those early, really critical caregiving years between birth and five or birth and eight, depending on how you define early childhood. But yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, you know, when I think about um, kind of my grad school days, this really harkens to me around um, attachment and secure attachment. Is is that the case? Is it different from attachment? And what does that, that, that difference look like? Yeah, so when we focus on relational health, especially early relational health, what we're trying to do is enhance secure attachment so that we're really teaching caregivers in partnership um, ways that they can enhance attunement, ways that they can enhance attachment Mm -hmm. so they can really be um, in relationship with their child, whether it's a baby that we're talking about or um, an older child. Yeah. When I, um, I know that this is uh, a topic that's close to, to my heart. And when I first started in the field, I was working mostly in early childhood and in the space of prevention after I had learned about ACEs through in grad school back in 2010, telling my age, um, and how it connected to um, juvenile, um, juvenile uh, offenders. And that's what I was studying at the time. And so in my space of, you know, what does it mean to prevent um, these issues, it was greatly emphasized on this time period from zero to three. And this is often when um, children are not visible in the community as well. So it's, you know, I think this is very important. I think this is very a critical space where pediatricians and those early um, practitioners in a child's life can have a great impact. Um, yeah, Ingrid, can I, can I? Tell a story that emphasizes your points. When I was a young resident, I can also date myself even before yours, but (laughs) I was working in a youth corrections um, area in Oregon, and I was seeing these, you know, developmental histories of kids, and the diagnosis that they were all being given was oppositional defiant disorder, conduct Mm -hmm. disorder, all these things, and then sandwiched in this juvenile correction day, I was doing home visits with babies and toddlers and their parents. And I was looking at these files and comparing the files. And I was like, this is the same file. There's just been more time for adversity to happen and um, systemic racism and inequalities that were happening for these kids and their caregivers. And um, so much, um, you know, so many gaps between what that child needed in the early years that really could have ameliorated attunement, relational health through safe, stable, positive caregivers in their lives. And it just, it really hit me that 
Um, I really wanted to be in a space of early relational health to move upstream, to be more preventative in nature. Yeah, exactly. And and I remember having that same kind of um, like light bulb going off of like, oh, this is, you know, these children. And at, at the time I was um, wrongly focused on the parents as, as, as being problematic and, you know, parenting practices were the root of the issue. And um, as I've grown in my career and also just in my research, um, those environmental stressors on parents are really what's at play here. And so you kind of touched on issues like um, racism and obviously the stressors of poverty and how that impacts, how both of those issues impact not just, you know, the actual barriers around access or accessibility, but um, but also just stressors that cause adversity for parents so that they are less able to attune to a child's needs and be responsive um, because of that allostatic load and, and things of that nature. Um, I think when we're talking about early relational health and relational health in, in general, I think it's important to also kind of Think about, you know, what are the kind of symptoms of um, developmental trauma, or early trauma and adversity? And it's often the inability to um, connect or maintain relationships. And um, as we know, those relationships are where we get our resilience. This is, we, we heal within relationships. And that shows just how detrimental, um, you know, a lack of um this critical time period being, you know, being uh, able to foster this type of relationship with caregivers, that it will be kind of like the cornerstone of their future relationships. And so let's talk a little bit about that um, as we get to kind of the broader relational health and how um, trauma and adversity can have impact across the lifespan beyond those early years. Yeah, well, I first want to unpack something that you said, which I think is critically important. Those zero to five years are an important developmental time in a child and caregiver's life. And so if a caregiver isn't able to attend to a child's need because they can't navigate the system because of um, systemic disparities, because the parent is struggling with a mental health issue, because they can't access resources due to extreme poverty, that's going to affect the caregiving relationship because the parent is in a space of survival. The parent has to make a choice at that point to survive and to provide for their family versus focusing on things like attuned caregiving and, you know, co-reading or narrating books and play and being available for that empathic growth. And so if if we don't support caregivers in those early years, then what we're really doing is we're not supporting the child's ability to grow and maintain social emotional health. And those early years are the building blocks for that, that later, later we're going to see that 13-year-old or that 14-year-old and we're going to say, oh, oh, they have oppositional defiant disorder or they have attachment difficulties or, you know, they're acting out in class, let's say even something more simple. Well, there's, we can often trace that back to what were those safe, supportive, nurturing, caregiving environments like in the early years? Yeah, this uh, conversation really points to the importance of policies that support these types of um you know, early relational health. And so 
what does it mean in the policy space for um, us as a society to support parents of very young children? And, you know, one of the things that really stands out to me would be um, issues around um, maternal and paternal leave um, from, from work. Are there some other ways that we can think of maybe structurally that can add support to, to families during those critical years? Yeah, so the Harvard Center for the Developing Child came out with three primary factors that really help and strengthen. Um, we want to support responsive caregiving, right? Uh, we want to strengthen core skills of parents, and we want to reduce sources of stress for parents. Mm -hmm. So those three things become really critical in supporting that caregiver relationship. I think about policy around graduate medical education, for instance, when we're talking about pediatrics, we have a huge, um, even though we're doing really well, we have a huge percentage of pediatric providers and family practice providers who still don't know what ACEs are, who mm. don't know and, and can't recognize early childhood trauma, who can't differentiate infant and toddler mental health from other types of mental health that we see as long-term outcome or manifestations um, later in that child's life. And so if we can do things like support graduate medical education to understand adversity, trauma, and um, inherent discrepancies, if we can reduce sources of stresses for parents um, by making sure when we're doing uh, screeners, for instance, around social determinants of health, that we're doing it in a culturally appropriate way, um, within a context of community resources that are actually available to them, right? By asking about food insecurities and diaper insecurities and housing insecurities, um, pairing with community partners who are really knowledgeable in communities about what other resources are available, not just when a, a parent's struggling, but really to help them thrive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this conversation is making me think about, um, especially when we're looking at like the actual application, what can parents do? Um, you had talked a little bit about play and I, and it made me think about, you know, my own um, journey with my mother. And then of course, with my children and how I struggled with play. And, and even though I have resources, space and time, um, I realized that the reason why I struggle with it is because my mother didn't have resource space and time. So she didn't play with me in that way. We didn't have those types of interactions. And then this points to kind of this intergenerational transmission. So even um, as we're looking at the broader you know, landscape of children and families, we also have to have this generational approach and understanding. Um, and you know, obviously, as a black woman, my my background, I have a historically traumatic background. And so this is kind of goes to that uh, issue around racism and other systemic issues, not just having impact with the individual, but also rippling through time and having impact on families. Um, what is your take on that? and and how do we address kind of early relational health from a generational standpoint? I love this question so much, Ingrid. Um, you know, we'll stay within the scope of like a pediatric practice, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. First of all, if we're going to talk about relational health, we have to be explicit about individual trauma, historical trauma, and intergenerational traumas. And we have to teach everybody who's interacting in that clinic with that child, with that family, 
what that is, how it manifests, what it might look like, so that when you have um, a mom, for instance, show up for a well child visit, and she's taken two buses to get there, and she's rearranged her schedule three times to be able to make it, and now she's 10 minutes late because the bus were off schedule. And the front office person says something to her like, you know, sorry, we're not sure if Dr. So-and-so can see you today because you're late. And now she's angry, right? Um, because now she's taken time off work and taken multiple buses and whatever the case may be. And now we're judging this mom because of how she's presenting, which really isn't in any indication how much she cares or loves for her baby or her child or how much she wants to receive or engage in pediatric care. It's a result of all these other things you just talked about, right? Inequities in the system. So now she's back in the exam room and the pediatrician is saying, you know, you should do special time or play time with your child, you know, for, you know, 10 minutes, three or four mm -hmm. times a week. And um, then she checks back in or, you know, maybe a nurse manager checks back in and, and now mom's non-compliant. And I'm saying that in quotes, Ingrid, yeah. um, for people that can't see me, she's non-compliant. Um, how do we get curious about the why, right? Mm -hmm. How do we assume, how do we take some of our knowledge about social learning theory and intergenerational trauma, knowing that a mom's only doing, or a dad, or whomever the caregiver is, they're only doing as best as they can from what they learned from their environments. Mm -hmm. How do we know that and then ask curious questions, believing that parents do well when they can? Yeah. And that if they're not, there's probably something happening, some, some kind of um, knowledge gap or resource gap or support gap that they need. Because in all of my work, working with marginalized parents of any type, Type, once they have the tool, all parents want to do well. I've yet to meet a parent who doesn't want to do well and have healthy, happy, well-adjusted kids. Yeah. I think, you know, the more we, you know, discuss these issues and social learning definitely plays a part. Um, the more I discuss uh, the issue of early childhood trauma, uh, early relational health with people who are in the medical space, so pediatricians and doctors and physicians. Um, and we talk more about how it's difficult to integrate this understanding into pediatrics because of um, kind of biomedical standpoint and very, you know, prescriptive ways of, you know, checking off a list and things of that nature or being very focused on vitals and things of that nature. Um, and one of the solutions I've given in con in my consulting in the medical space is having a working definition for historical trauma within within medical. Um, even though when I say that, uh, I'm leery of people being labeled, right? But but it's still uh, over and over again these conversations come up where there is a need for a clear understanding around historical trauma and what that, you know, looks like and how that manifests and how that impacts, you know, practices and procedures. Uh, and I think, you know, early relational health is one of the ways that we can have a very clear understanding um, of, around how we address generational issues. And also it allows for us to have a, um, a clear understanding of how impactful environmental issues are within this biomedical framework in, in, in the medical field. Um, 
let's talk, you know, when we look at kind of the role of pediatricians, I know your book is really focused on pediatricians. Um, why pediatricians? What is the kind of critical role that they play um, mm-hmm. in this space? There is no one else, Ingrid, who has access to kids and families as early in their life as pediatricians do. Um, you know, starting even from prenatal kind of, you know, uh, getting to know a physician and even obstetric health, these folks are involved in kids and families' life from the moment they're born, from the moment they're in the hospital. And they already do so many great things around anticipatory care um, when we think about, you know, putting kids on their back to sleep or bicycle helmets. So parents look to them for both anticipatory guidance of how to take care of their babies and toddlers, but also they are the first responder, if you will, in the healthcare system. And they are seen as, you know, kind of the first line of defense where parents go to for information. Yeah, I think um, as we get uh, very clear, um, you know, very clear, you know, steps that pediatricians can take to, to, you know, be in this role, embody this role as kind of the, the clear buffer for families of very young children against adversity and operationalize it as much as possible, then we can see a great deal of impact there. And I do believe, you know, in the science around early relational health, I, um, I'm, I always uh, tend to think of these types of um, initiatives in an equity standpoint. So um, I see early relational health as a tool of equity for um, children and families of color. And um, as we build up those skills within families, then we have the ability to kind of break some of those generational issues, kind of like the one that I brought up with my mother, who was um, single mother working a lot, very busy, didn't have time to play, didn't understand the the critical role of playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, and, you know, if I didn't have a, a degree in child studies, when I, when I had to, then I would have been at a loss as well. But because I had that degree in knowledge, uh, I knew that it was important. I kind of made sure that I made time, but, um, but if I didn't, then, you know, this is where we get into this these um, cycles. And I do believe, you know, like you said, pediatricians are kind of in that space where they can, they can be in the space to educate and also um, are there when, you know, the child is not very visible in the community. They're really kind of the only profession that's there from zero to three actively on a regular basis. Um, So, so when we, in, in our book, well, one of the things that we're really encouraging pediatricians to do, you mentioned vital signs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we both had the the opportunity to be mentored by Dr. David Willis and have incorporated into our book the idea of like relational vital signs. Like we should mm-hmm. all be taking a relational health history and being curious with the caregiver that's in the room about, you know, what kinds of adversities they experienced, what kind of relational health they want to experience now um, so that we can bridge some of those gaps for families that like you're talking about, right? May not have had the experience, but here we have a, a supportive healthcare provider who is trusted that is there and can bridge the gap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I definitely agree um, with that. And I think you know, when we are looking at, you know, what parents can do 
um, in that space, I think that this is a very critical, you know, PSA that we we need to have kind of like when you were talking about, you know, now we have a very clear understanding that, you know, children should be laid on their backs um, in cribs. And we have these very clear kind of PSAs for parents and best practices for parents um, when they're when they're new and, and don't know what they they need to do, that we need to begin to incorporate this information around early relational health. Um, especially for um, parents who are dealing with intergenerational poverty and racism um, so that they can be sure to kind of break these, again, these generational issues. Um, I think, you know, as we, especially when we get back from the break, we can dig in more around, um, you know, early relational health as an equity issue and what that means for families. And we can also kind of jump into, you know, some some strategies, um, you know, when you are one-on-one -on -one with your with your infant, with your child, what that looks like to build early relational health um, and how we can use this understanding to foster resilience, collective resilience, um, as we, you know, make sure that this information is broadly understood within the medical field. So um, let's let's take a break and then we'll we'll jump back into this conversation. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This podcast is supported by St. David's Foundation, a community-focused and equity-driven organization supporting health and well-being in Central Texas. To learn more about St. David's Foundation, visit www.stdavidsfoundation.org. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. 
Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back. Thank you for joining us. Today we are talking with Dr. Amy King. And we will um, kind of jump back into our conversation around early relational health. Um, Amy, before we went to the break, you were telling us that you had a mentor in this work while you were writing your upcoming book. Can you tell me more about that uh, mentor relationship? And then we'll jump back into our our discussion. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, I've had several mentors in this Mm -hmm. area, but the one I in particularly mentioned was Dr. David Willis. He is with the Center for the Study of Social Policy mm-hmm. and um, also on Nurture Connect. But he, um, most important to me, was a mentor in the state of Oregon where I practice and really encouraged myself and my co-author um, when it comes to early relational health and the importance of connection in those early years. Yeah, I want to make sure I give him a shout out. Um- <laughs> But let's let's jump back into our discussion around early relational health. Kind of when we um, stopped before, we were talking about early relational health as an equity issue and how it could be used as a tool to disrupt generational cycles. Um, and so I want to get back into that conversation because it makes me think about, um, you know, kind of how I got into this work. Um, I was working with juvenile offenders, and um, that really led me into um, the the study of childhood trauma. And at first, I was very much a critic of, you know, parenting. I, I thought that parenting was kind of root cause for, um, you know, these types of behaviors that I was seeing in the children that I was working with. And as I became familiar with the ACEs study in grad school, and also as I became familiar with the concept of historical trauma, I began to understand first how, um, you know, I was definitely looking at research through a, a racist lens. So I had to, you know, acknowledge that, you know, being in this country, I was raised in a racist country. So I was, I was, um, it helped me to realize how much I was a part of this system. And then I had to think about, you know, these systems of, um, you know, poverty, especially intergenerational poverty and racism greatly impact early relational health and greatly impact the amount of adversity someone might experience um, in their, in their childhood. And one of the things that you brought up that I um, I definitely agree with is um, that survival parenting space. And that as we have environments that um, make parents um, dig into this kind of survival state where they're really kind of on, on the hamster wheel, um, they're just trying to survive, they're trying to provide, and it leaves no real space for them to, um, uh, you know, connect 
and um, develop an appropriate level of attachment and um, and also dealing with the stressors of that type of 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 lifestyle. What do you think? Um, you know, how can parents on a real practical level, what does it look like day to day for a parent to enhance um, the early uh, relational health of their infants and toddlers? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think as professionals, we have to honor parents and we have to honor them as experts in their child and um, honor the relationship that I know all parents inherently want to have. I'm, I don't, I don't care what kind of parent we're talking about, Ingrid. I've met parents who've struggled with addiction, who've struggled with, you know, faced poverty, um, homelessness. They all want happy, safe, healthy children. And so we have to first just acknowledge, right, that um, parents are the first expert on their child. And then I think if we can focus on some things they're already doing well and right, right? Like we can walk into, and and I, I worked in pediatric settings and I can walk into an interaction and watch what's happening between a dad and a baby or a mom and her toddler. And if I can just start by observing and noticing what's going well and right, the research shows that instead of telling a parent what they're doing wrong or what they're not doing, if we tell them, oh gosh, you know, look, your baby started crying and I noticed you picked her up right away. Let me talk to you about how important that is for their growth and development when you meet their needs. Or did you see that when you were talking to me about some of the, your concerns, your baby's actually tracking your voice and, and looking for you in the room or that your toddler's reaching out to you because he's kind of scared about like maybe getting a needle poked that day or what this exam is gonna look like. And so I think first, if we can observe what's going well and right. Um, if we can see parents as partners, we can make really first steps in creating a trusting relationship where that parent feels like they have somebody who is an ally for them and that they can talk to about parenting struggles of any type. Um, and I think the other part of your question is like, what are some things we can do? We, we really need to begin to focus on teaching parents about the importance of connection with their child. Um, when I say parents do well when they can, I 100% believe that if a parent has been experiencing stress, worry, and adversity, they may not realize like how important it is to um, put their toddler up on the counter while they're doing dishes and just talk to them about doing dishes, right? There are, there are some really straightforward things that we can do that stimulate brain growth, that stimulate empathy responses um, that we can do during what I call activities of daily living, right? You got to make dinner anyway, or the kids got to get a bath anyway. Let's give mom or dad some skills that they could use while they're already doing those things um, so that it doesn't feel like one more thing, but something that can just be part of their normal schedule yeah. that will also enhance connection. Yeah, I, I definitely like that. You know, um, kind of like what you said about it doesn't feel like another thing on top of um, already maybe stressful or hectic lifestyles. Um, I do believe, you know, um, as we talked about early relational health within the context of, you know, that, that lifelong impact um, and how as we build this foundation of early relational health that it has a, a great deal of impact into adulthood. And so let's talk a little bit more how we use this 
knowledge of early relational health to foster resilience? What does that look like in a in a real way? And as we kind of, you know, think about what this means, kind of this blanket PSA around early relational health in, in pediatrics, that we have the ability to kind of foster some collective resilience. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, first of all, I think resilience, the word has gotten a bad rap. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people confuse resilience with grit or determination or perseverance. And especially when you're talking about people of color or marginalized groups like LGBTQ plus groups, and you say, just keep being resilient, stick with it. It's pretty offensive, right? Um, resilience is really meant to be in relationship. It's meant to be in a connected space. It happens over time. Um, resilience isn't something that, you know, we're born with, but it's kind of how we learn to adapt and skill build, but we only do that through relational modeling and through connection. Um, so I think we have to first all be on the same page about what, what do we mean when we say resilience? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, resilience does have a bad rap. Uh, and, and I appreciate you saying that because, uh, as we, especially as we talk about those groups who are experienced oppression, um, there's no real resilience against racism or you know extreme poverty. Um, however, we can um, have an understanding of resilience through um, modeling and mirroring. Um, so it, it does have to happen within um, relationship with others, especially in, um, in early childhood. Um, and as we, as we know, the science is very clear that as we have that and we build that in early childhood, then it has lifelong impact. Um, when it comes to what the overall benefits are for you know, individuals, communities, and societies uh, as we adopt um, this understanding, um, what does that look like as we become a society that has adopted our, this understanding of, this, of um, this concept of early relational health? What are the possibilities there? I mean, this is, I could talk about this for hours, Ingrid, but here's my passion, right? If we know that connected relationship is what builds resilience, and if we know resilience is what mitigates stress and harm, then it becomes imperative to enhance connection through relationships between caregivers and their children as young as possible. When we look at that ACEs study and what we call the expanded definition of trauma through the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, um, and then what we know ameliorates harm, when we look at positive childhood experiences, it's all about connection. So even when we control for things like a high ACE score, right, an ACE score of four or more, um, if we control for that, but a child and a family has experienced uh, positive connections in their community, um, strong faith or belief in their cultural systems, um, you know, nurturing, consistent, predictable um, points of family rituals and family routines. When those things are present, it decreases the impact that that trauma would otherwise have throughout that child's entire life trajectory. And so when I'm training early professionals on how we build resilience, I'm talking about supporting first the caregiver at the youngest ages and then continuing to support the caregiver and family 
through those connected relationships, because that's what's going to build resilience. So, you know, I mean, I would just say, I don't care if, you know, your EHR system says like today we're supposed to talk about, you know, bicycle helmet safety. Um, if mom doesn't have one safe, connected person that she can talk to when she's feeling overwhelmed, or if the child um, who's 11 or 12 can't name three positive nurturing relationships in his or her life, those relational connections are the number one determining factor for long-term health and not just mental health, but our, our, our emotional health, our um, physical health, our long-term health. Yeah, and I am definitely a believer that there's no such thing as the separation between mental and physical health that, um, you know, the ACES study has definitely helped us to understand that as we experience adversity, um, whether it's emotional or physical, that we have impact across the lifespan that is physical in nature. So um, those, you know, chronic stress-related diseases are are more prevalent in those who've experienced early trauma. Um, when when we consider the possibilities as we think about what's possible for pediatricians' offices across the country as they read your book, right? Um, what is it that you would like to see in the world? What is it that you would want to see implemented? You know, what is it that you know across the board? Um, pediatricians can do kind of like what we talked about with the parents that what that looks like, what does that look like for pediatricians? Yeah. I mean, my hope is that every pediatrician, every health provider first knows what trauma is. Mm -hmm. Um, They should be able to define it. They should be able to differentiate between individual systemic and intergenerational traumas. Um, They should know how it presents, um, what it looks like on a neurobiological and epigenetic level um, Mm -hmm. so that we can begin to address inequities. And then they need to know what to do about it. It's one thing to notice it. It's another thing to know what to do about it. So then they they really need to be steeped in the knowledge about relational health. How do we enhance relational health? Because those those um, supports and interventions that we would provide to enhance connection are what is going to ameliorate the stress and trauma that we've identified and that now we're more aware of. But we can actually do more harm if we just ask about trauma and know about trauma, but don't provide the resources to do anything about the trauma. So I would say in answer to your question, I want healthcare providers to have a really strong foundational knowledge in what is trauma, what causes trauma, and then what do we do once we notice it and see it so that we can support critical caregiving years, children, families, and then obviously those that are in, you know, family practice and serving other patients, you know, their long-term health. Yeah, and this makes me think about, you know, kind of some of the work that's being done across the country around networks of care. Mm -hmm. And what does it look like to have a network of care for zero to three? Um, Often we we have networks of care around mental health or behavioral health. We have networks of care, obviously around physical health. Um, And even when we think about networks of care that are youth-centered, they're not talking about infancy. Um, And so that lack of visibility from zero to three is critical. And 
as we have very clear, strong networks of care um, that incorporate, you know, not just zero to three, but also, um, you know, maybe young parents, teenagers, so that there's a very clear understanding of what's needed as we move into parenting, potential uh, potential parenting age, um, as and as we create kind of these systems of referral. Because I know when you talked before, you talked about the uh, importance of having referrals within communities and community partners. Um, and is that something that you think is is possible or is is needed? And what come you know what do those community partners kind of look like in real life? Yeah, you know it's interesting when you say the zero to three network of care. Um, if we survey specialty mental health people, if we survey integrated behavioral health folks, so people who are um, working with kids and families, most of them don't feel comfortable addressing mental health needs of infants and toddlers, zero to three. And that also means addressing the mental health needs of their caregivers, obviously, mm-hmm. and recognizing you know, postpartum depression and other, other factors that may get in the way of critical caregiving. Um, so the first thing is, I think, you know, it, it is absolutely possible, but we need to increase training capacities for people who are serving children zero to three and, and make sure that there's an understanding that there is such a thing as infant and toddler mental health, right? It's not mental health doesn't just start when you're, you know, three and four and you're, you know, you're talking, um, it's really founded in those early years and through your, you know, primary caregiving relationships. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that when there is developmental trauma that occurs in those first three years of a child's life, it has a much more significant impact than traumas that would occur later in their life because it's so foundational for growth, development, relational health, and social-emotional capacities. Um, So I envision, you know, a space where we are training professionals, not just in medicine, but in any specialty mental health, um, early childhood spaces to really understand what infant and toddler mental health is and and how we can have an impact on it. I also don't think, Ingrid, that you have to be a, a doctoral level trained therapist to be therapeutic, right? I I work with community health workers and nurse home visiting programs and parent advocates and a lot of other spaces that have a huge impact on family well-being, on infant and toddler well-being, and who are at the ready, right? We have an an incredible workforce of people who can do this work if given the right tools. Yeah, and this brings up another structural issue that's important in this conversation. You know, as we talk about the critical time period that this is from zero to three. And then we think about those who work with children at this age. Yes, they are, they tend to be undertrained um, for sure, but also underinvested in and underpaid. And so there is this uh, disconnect in the way that we value those who work in this space um, by not paying them well and um, devaluing the work that they are able to provide to the larger society. And this gets into a, a deeper, bigger issue um, than just kind of like policy. Like, what what does it mean to pay uh, early child care providers well and make sure that they're well trained, but also how we value those in those positions 
um, who are also tend to be, you know, in marginalized and oppressed groups. And so it is kind of a um, an unfortunate cycle um, that we are not investing in our in our youngest um, citizens or or not our youngest, um, you know, the people in our society that are the most vulnerable. We're not investing in them. And what does it mean for us to, you know, take that very seriously and how that underinvestment really impacts the larger society? What are your thoughts on on that, on how we um, treat and and um, care for those um, those providers and caregivers? I have two thoughts. Um, first, I have to believe that there is a complete lack of knowledge about how critically important brain development, relational development mm-hmm. is in these earliest years. I mean, I walk in circles of people who this, were steeped in this work, but when I look at our broader society, other professions, other even ancillary touching professions, um, they're not aware of how critically important these early years are. So I feel like the more we continue to talk about it, right, the more we spread the word around um, how important infant and toddler mental health is, how important uh, critical caregiving years are around early relational health. My hope is that that knowledge will um, lead to change, which means I also have to have hope that um, within our health professions, you know, there has to be a shift, Ingrid, If you look at even, you know, pediatrics and primary care compared to specialty care, you know, orthopedics or cardiology or something like that, we don't value preventative care. And zero to three care is the most preventative care that is out there. Caring for them and caring for their caregivers is the most upstream we can move in terms of dismantling some of those later things that are happening when that child is 14, 15, 17. And, you know, you and I are working or have worked in corrections or other spaces where we see the long-term impact. But if we can begin to value people who are providing early care, anticipatory care, um, home visiting services and knowing that those are the most important years for a child, it it changes everything. It changes so many programs later on that cost our society billions of dollars. Yeah. And, and I agree, you know, I've been in this work for a while and yes, I do feel um, I often forget that I'm in a bubble and I'm like, of course people know. And so <laughs> people may not know. And, and even, you know, you know, kind of that, that return on investment discussion is, um, I, I agree with it, but I also, I'm saddened every time that we have to give a return on investment pitch at, you know, at any state level or, you know, to, because, um, it's just a reflection of, you know, the lack of of care or um, compassion or empathy um, when it comes to these types of discussions around our again our most vulnerable members of our society um, that we need to talk about dollars and cents for you know like if we put investments into early childhood then we don't have to invest in other areas when they get older 
And, um, and yeah, the return on investment discussions always make me sad, even though they are very, very real and true. It is a great deal of money that our society is spending um, where we could put a 10th of that towards prevention. Um, I do want to give you money, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so much money in a pill that solves, you know, type two diabetes or, you know, hypertension or whatever the case may be. Um, I don't make as much money by talking to a young mom and her baby. And so I think too, wouldn't it be great if we had to pair up the people that were benefiting from some of the, the, the policymaking with early related health and care. Yeah. And that's a whole other episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So before we, before we jump off, I want to give you some time to tell people where they can find your book and to, to pre-order and let them know when it's coming out um, so that you, our audience can, can check you out. Yeah. Thank you. So if you're a healthcare provider, you can go to the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics website and they have a shop place where you can pre-order your book. If not, you can go to Amazon. Um, you can pre-order the book there. Um, that's um, a place you can find it. And then you can find me too on socials. And I have a website that people can find me. My uh, Everything about my book is on there as well, Ingrid. Yes. And give us the title of your book one more time. A Trauma-Informed Pediatric Practice, A Resilience-Based Roadmap to Early Relational Health. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. And thank you to our audience. We will um, we'll be back next week to have further conversations about history, culture, and trauma. Thank you so much, Dr. King. Thank you so much, Ingrid. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.